0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. NIL collectives have exploded in the last few months. Defined as a group of donors slash boosters slash fans and others who've pulled their money to reward a college athlete for enrolling, succeeding, or transferring to your favorite school, this evolution in the area of NIL is confusing to say the least. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by an expert in this area, attorney Mitt Winter. Mitt is an attorney with Kenny Hertz Perry in Kansas City, Missouri. Mitt is recognized as a leading college athlete, name, image, and likeness lawyer, and is sought out by clients in the media for this expertise. In combination with his background as a former Division I college basketball player at the College of William & Mary, Mitt is uniquely suited to assist and advise athletes, universities, and other clients with legal matters surrounding NIL opportunities and businesses. In addition to NIL issues, Mitt and I discussed the evolution of intellectual property for both the institution and the athlete and whether the NIL deals might get so big for some athletes that they might forego entering the pro sports landscape a bit longer because the deals in college could be so huge. Hi Mitt and welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey Karen thanks for having me on appreciate it.
0: So so glad to have you here today. You know you've got such a tremendous background of information about NIL but let's first start with your career. You were a men's basketball player at the College of William and Mary. What would your collegiate athlete Mitt think about what's going on for collegiate athletes today?
1: Um yeah I played uh basketball at William & Mary from 1997 to 2001. I had a basketball scholarship um, to go there. Um, You know, putting myself in my shoes back when I was in college, um, I'd probably be pretty excited about the NIL changes, Um, you know, when you're in college and you hear that you have an opportunity to to maybe make some money. You know, most, most people in college are always looking for ways to make money don't always have a lot of money um, so I probably would have been uh, pretty excited about it but also when you're in college especially as an athlete you know you're you're playing your sport you're trying to go to school so you're spending a lot of time on both of those things you probably have heard about NIL you know and you know a little bit about it but you probably don't know all the, the ins and outs of it and what you can not do and what you, what you're uh, what you can do Um, and how deals work and and how you're going to get deals and all that stuff. So I'd be interested, but probably um, a little uninformed about everything that's going on.
0: I think a lot of my listeners might feel that way, a little uninformed. So that's why we brought you here today. Your background is as a sports lawyer, as I mentioned in the intro. But you've really focused on this NIL space. So just give us an an overview of the NIL landscape. Where are we today?
1: Yeah, so where we are today is not where most people, when NIL first kind of became a thing and when the rules changed, um, most of the deals happening now are are probably not the types of deals that uh, people envisioned. So In addition to the deals that I think most people thought about where there's a business, they might want to have a college athlete endorse their business, whether that's sending out social media posts, making appearances, signing autographs, maybe being in a a TV commercial, something like that. There are those types of deals going on. But so much of the landscape now is with um, what people are calling NIL collectives, where Fans or, or boosters of a specific school are getting together outside of the university, forming a completely separate entity from the university, whether that's an LLC for-profit business or some are forming those nonprofit businesses. And they're they're pooling this money together. And then they, in a lot of cases, are doing their, their own quote unquote NIL deals. With athletes or they're going out and helping the athletes find these NIL deals so that's kind of where a lot of the action is happening now and a lot of the things that people might be reading about in the news with some of these very large sums of money that are um, being given to some athletes.
0: So that's interesting. So if I'm a college president or senior leader and I hear this word collectives, I immediately think about all the possible legal implications for my campus. Are there any?
1: Yes, um, there definitely are. Um, You know, a lot of states have state NIL laws now um, that, you know, they list certain categories of deals that athletes can't do. Um, they also talk about um, how involved schools can can get in helping their athletes obtain these deals, or whether they can be involved at all. Um, so the collectives could, you know, either get the athletes into some trouble based on the deals they're finding for the athletes, um, or they could possibly, depending on what that relationship is between the collective and the school, that could create. Um, some issues as, as well um, it's it's a very interesting question because as a university president or someone else in a similar position, you know you really would want to know what is going on with these these collectives, what they're doing with the athletes so they're not getting the athletes in trouble but on the other hand, there might be a state law or um, some other rules that are preventing you from really having um, a serious Relationship with these collectives. Um, so it's it's a very interesting topic right now. And it's kind of all over the place based on these different state laws or whether your school is actually in a state that that has a law, because some of the states don't have NIL laws right now.
0: So two things come to mind. Uh, one, we might have a state law, but it might actually be revised. It could mm-hmm. have been updated since, since last summer. But two, I also wonder if presidents might not be concerned about the diversion of alumni donation dollars from the institution to these collectives. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, definitely. That's a a big concern that um, I've heard from some people I've talked to and um, that I've read about um, in articles or on social media. People in the NIL space have talked about that a lot. Um, I've actually talked to um, some administrators in a university athletic department. Um, And they're like, yeah, we don't want to have a collective for our school because we need all the money we can get going into our athletics department so we can fund our athletics program. We don't want money that might be coming into our athletics program from a a donor going to this collective instead. Um, So it's definitely a concern that I've heard. Um, I don't, no one really knows since NIL is still relatively new and it hasn't even been a, f- a full year since the rules have changed. No one really has a good handle on whether money going to the collectives is taking money away from school's athletic department or even money that's being given from a, by a business to an athlete as part of a, a, you know, what we call a traditional NIL deal is taking sponsorship dollars that may have gone to the school in the past all of the money. Now it's kind of being divided up between the school and the athlete. No one has a real good handle on that. Um, I think I'm sure there are people, um, especially in the uh, academic world who will probably, you know, try and track that um, once we have better numbers to see if that is happening, if if less money is going to the school because it's going to NIL deals. Um, But no one really has hard numbers on that yet, but it's definitely a concern that people are thinking about.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great point, and it's something that presidents really ought to be tracking on. And I guess a, a thought comes to mind, is there anything they can do about it? I mean, is it more, more up to NCAA or state legislation?
1: Yeah, I don't really think there is anything a president can do about it besides um, going out and talking to the people that are are donating the money, um, maybe to the collectives and you know explaining why they think it's important that they're still giving money to the athletics department instead of transferring all those donations over to a collective Um, i think that's probably the most important thing they can do is just educate educate their donors on what the collectives are and when they give money to the athletic department where that money goes and just just so they're aware of you know how important their money is to the school
0: Is there any differentiation for the donor? For example, when they donate to a university, I think it's up to 80% of it is tax deductible. Is there any tax deductibility for the LLC?
1: Um, It would depend on the collective. So as I mentioned earlier, some of these collectives are um, for-profit businesses, LLCs or or corporations. So if you're donating to those, you're not going to get a uh, tax write-off or at least a tax deduction. It could be considered a a business expense if you're donating it from from a business um, and the athlete's doing something in return. So it's sort of like your your marketing budget. You can get a a business write-off for your business. Um, But if you're just donating to a for-profit corporation, you're not getting the tax deduction like you would if you're giving money to the university. But some of these collectives um, have been successful in organizing or getting 501c3 status from the IRS. So in that situation, you would be getting a tax deduction since it's going to a nonprofit. Um, there is a big question about even though some of these collectives have already gotten 501c3 status and there are more that are applying for it. You know, they may get that status, but then down the road, is that status going to be maintained? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of question marks about whether these collectives are really you know, nonprofits, charitable organizations, and if if they're audited and the IRS actually kind of looks into where the money's going, you know, is that is that really the proper um, use of the nonprofit tax status?
0: Does the athlete have any trouble if that, in fact, does happen? The uh, the organization is investigated and found to be not in compliance with federal law.
1: I don't think the athlete would have um, any repercussions from that. Um, you know, with these collectives, even with, with the nonprofits, the way it works is they're, the athletes are being paid to go out and then promote uh, these charitable organizations. Um, so, you know, whether it's a for-profit or a nonprofit business, they're being paid to perform a service. So I don't think they'd have any issues there.
0: Okay. Okay. What about those blanket gifts that were happening early on? I, I think of, I think it was Brigham Young University where our donor came in and said, you get a scholarship. You get a scholarship. Everybody gets a scholarship sitting in the room, even the walk-ons, so that was uniform across the teams. Where do you see that going? Was that an early indicator, or was that something that we've now surpassed?
1: Yeah, that the uh, BYU deal you referred to was with a company called Built Bar, and I, I believe the founder of the company was a BYU alum and, and a, a big BYU booster. And so he went in and did NIL deals with all of their football walk-ons and the amount of the deals coincided with their amount of tuition. So they basically got their tuition covered. So the football team, in essence, got, I don't know how many walk-ons they had, maybe around 30 or so, but 30 additional scholarships. Um, There have been some other team-wide deals like that. um, And there may be more. Um, there's really no issue with those as long as the athletes have to do something in return for that money. Um, I don't, that one did make a big splash. We may see some more. I've, I've seen some other deals. I know K-State, um, did a deal with some, some of the walk-ons, but not all of the walk-ons very similar to that, where their tuition is now going to be covered, um, as part of an NIL deal. Um, so there remains to be seen whether there will be some more of those, those big team-wide deals or not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> you, you and I have discussed on Twitter the other day the possibility that in some cases, the incentives to stay in college and continue on with your eligibility and receive large NIL payments might alter the decision-making of some football and men's basketball players, maybe even some women's basketball players. About turning pro. In other words, it might incentivize them to stay in college longer because simply they can get a better deal financially than going pro. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. Um, let's just talk about football and men's basketball first. Um, you know, every year there are a very limited number of players, especially for men's basketball, who get drafted. But there are always more guys than get drafted that declare for the draft and think they might get drafted. So if you're not one of the, if you're not a lottery pick or a first round pick who is guaranteed to get a set amount of money, um, same with the NFL, if you're not, you know, first round pick, second round pick, if you're below that, it's possible that you could make more money if you stay in school and get an NIL deal with, with a business or a collective, plus if you're one of those guys who's an NBA second-round pick, a free agent, NFL fourth, fifth, sixth-round, seventh-round pick, you're also not guaranteed to make the team. Um, so you're not really guaranteed any money um, with these NIL deals. You're, you're you're pretty much guaranteed the money. Um, you get to to stay in school, um, keep working on on your your sport, um, while making this money at the same time. So that's definitely going to be Part of a calculation for someone thinking about whether they're going to put their name in the NFL draft, uh, the NBA draft. Um, with the NBA specifically, even if let's say you do get drafted, you might be on a, a two-way contract between the, the top the NBA team and the G League team. And on those contracts, you know you're not making millions of dollars like the guys in the NBA. So your NIL deal at your school could possibly be higher. Um, With women's basketball, you know, unfortunately the salaries for the WNBA are nowhere near what the salaries are in the NBA. And it's very possible, you know, I'm I'm sure Paige Beckers at UConn has probably already made more money this over the past year in NIL deals than she will make as a rookie um, under her WNBA salary whenever she's in the WNBA. Um, so yeah, with the women's basketball players, if you, if you're staying in school and you have these these big NIL deals, I mean, it's very likely you're going to make more money in college. And then we're, we're not even talking about other sports like women's softball or, or volleyball. Um, some of those athletes or gymnastics, um, some of them have very lucrative NIL deals and they're really, there are pro leagues for some of those sports, but salaries aren't very high. And then with gymnastics, you know, there might not be any pro opportunities after you're out of college. So college is kind of the pinnacle of your, your career.
0: I think it's an important consideration that suddenly has landed on the table. Um, <clears throat> do you see any issues if a college athlete is involved with an NIL deal and gets injured? So therefore is not on the field, not playing. Does it depend on how long they're out for, or does it even matter?
1: Technically, Um, it shouldn't matter because NIL deals are not supposed to be based on athletic performance or, you know, the term pay for play. Um, it's all, they're all supposed to be based on the athlete doing something outside of athletics in return for this money. Um, but I could also see a brand who has a deal with a big name athlete, they, they love it that this athlete's on TV every week um, getting, you know, his name out there. And if they have a deal with him and then he gets injured, he's not, not on TV. He's not starting. He kind of falls out of the the public uh, limelight that the, the brand would not uh, like that very much, but there's really nothing they can do because the deal is not supposed to be based on athletic performance. Right. Right.
0: Have you heard of anything regarding um, whether an athlete's playing or not, as far as uh, their starting, whether they starter or reserve, impacting their NIL?
1: Um, gen- you know, generally, someone who's a starter is probably going to be getting more NIL opportunities than someone who is not. But it's it's very um, athlete dependent. So an example would be last year at Oklahoma. Spencer Rattler was a starting quarterback. He had a bunch of NIL deals. He got benched about halfway through the season. and then Caleb Williams became the starter. I believe Caleb Williams already had some NIL deals before. He was even a starter um, because he was a very well-known high school athlete. He was one of the top um, high school athletes coming out of high school before he got to Oklahoma. So you'll definitely have a situation where – very well-known high school athletes, once they show up on campus, people will be clamoring to do an aisle deals with them, even though they might not be the starter their first year, just because they're so well-known, especially among the fan bases. And if this company to promote themselves to a school's fan base, um, and the fan base might be following this guy on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, so they think he's a great ambassador um, for their product or NIL collectives are loving to do deals with, with high school athletes as well. Um, so you, there will be some situations I'm sure where a guy might be the starting quarterback, um, a new freshman comes in and this freshman might already have NIL deals that are higher than the starting quarterback. So it's, it's just going to be very dependent on, on the, the athletes that we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I wrote an article a few months ago about a quarterback from Texas high school football, in Texas, who went to Ohio State yep. as the backup, 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 backup quarterback. Yeah. I think he played like two snaps, maybe, Yeah. and then has transferred back to the to UT to be able to get, I think, at least a million dollars. You know, and they're not all guaranteed, but of NIL money.
1: Yeah, that was uh, Quinn Ewers, and he was I think rated the number one high school quarterback in the nation. He went to Ohio State, and I think part of the reason he went to Ohio State um, was so in Texas, high school athletes were not allowed to do NIL deals, and I think he signed some NIL deals uh, before he showed up at Ohio State, and he wouldn't have been able to take advantage of those deals if he went stayed in Texas, so I think that's part of the reason why he went to Ohio State, and yeah, he had multiple NIL deals, um, and he, as you mentioned, was not the starting quarterback. He was probably third string or fourth string. And he probably had more NIL deals than the starting quarterback.
0: It's really an amazing, an amazing space. Um, Since you mentioned high school, let's just take a quick dive there. Where are we going with this? I mean, it just strikes me. I know the national Federation of high schools has come out and said, we don't want to have our athletes, but it strikes me that there may be some athletes who are playing in AAU teams and other teams that are outside of high school. So where do you think we're going there?
1: The trend right now is to allow high school athletes to also do NIL deals. Um, I believe right now there are eight states where it's confirmed that high school athletes can do NIL deals and get paid for those deals and maintain their high school eligibility. And these are all based on uh, either rule interpretations or rule changes by state high school athletic associations. So that's where um, the rules that govern this are at, even though the National Association has kind of given their viewpoint on it, it's really up to each state. Um, And so, and there are more states, you know, every month, every week, whatever, that are saying, yeah, we're going to consider this, or or we have a a vote scheduled on this next month. So I think we're going to see that continue to happen. Then the other thing you mentioned is athletes going to schools that might be outside of a state high school athletic association. So there's a a trend now, especially with, you know, high level athletes they're completely opting out of their high school and maybe going to a prep school um, or an academy that is just focused on that sport. Um, I know it's happening a lot in, in basketball, Um, I can maybe starting to happen a little bit in football and some other sports as well. Uh, But most of those schools are either not members of their state high school athletic association or sometimes they're what's called affiliate members. So they don't have to follow the state high school athletic association rules on um, NIL deals. So athletes at most of those schools are allowed to do NIL deals and then uh, keep their high school athletics eligibility. And then the other issue with the high school deals is um, the the current NCAA rules, they do allow high school athletes to do deals and maintain their college eligibility. Where in the past, if you're a high school athlete, even if your state would have allowed you to do an NIL deal and keep your high school eligibility, you would have been putting your college eligibility at risk. Now you're not doing that.
0: Mitt, do you, do you know if that's completely off the table now? I remember when I was coaching and I would recruit international athletes, there was a lot of concern about whether they received money for <clears throat> travel or, or playing and that type of thing. Does that take that off the table as well? Or is that a completely separate thing?
1: That's a separate issue because if you're receiving money, like say from a professional team for, for travel or maybe a salary, um, that is still considered pay for play that's right. not an NIL deal so that that could still put your eligibility at risk
0: that's that's really fascinating mm-hmm. so let's shift a little bit and talk about intellectual property which is something i know you're really up to speed on i don't know that i've heard a lot of conversation around ip and nil but i'm wondering what if you're looking down the road if there will be an intersection and any challenges with that
1: yeah it actually is an issue and it's, um, it comes up actually more than you would think, um, you know, a lot of NIL deals, the businesses that are doing deals with the athletes would love to have the athlete, for example, in their team uniform. The problem that arises there is when you're in that team uniform, you have your schools, trademarks, and logos as part of that deal. Um, so A lot of this is up to the school NIL policies and they're kind of all over the place on whether they allow an athlete to use the school IP in connection with their NIL deals. Some say um, you're not allowed to use our logos, trademarks, any of our other IP in connection with your NIL deals at all. Just a blanket statement. You can't do it. Others say you can do it if you get our permission. Some say you're allowed to do it as long as the business that you're doing the deal with is quote unquote, a sponsor of the athletics department. Um, so it's really um, all over the place. Um, and then if, if they are allowed, then you have to have an agreement amongst the parties, like, like basically a group licensing deal where if the a school's IP is being used as part of the NIL deal, Obviously the athletes getting paid for his NIL and then the school would be getting paid as well. Um, A a good example is a jersey with the athlete's name on the back, which has the school's trademarks on it as well. So the school's getting paid on that, the athletes getting paid on that um, as part of a group licensing deal.
0: How about Could you foresee in the future an athlete having intellectual property claims in this space for his own, his or her own IP? Is that, you know better than I do, so. Yeah,
1: definitely. Um, There are already some college athletes who have uh, filed for trademarks. Um, If they have a nickname, for example, that that everyone calls them by, you can file a trademark application for that and then use it on T-shirts or hats or other apparel um so that that's definitely happening um same thing with, with copyrights um can do that as well for pictures and other things like that um so that that's something that's going to continue um to be an issue especially for athletes who are trying to sell their own merchandise with, with their names or logos or whatever on that um so yeah that's definitely happening already
0: it strikes me as an area that is not getting a lot of attention, but I also wonder eventually if we end up having athletes, you know, tied into gambling, for example, tied into, you know, go with this particular company or that particular company, if the company might also ask the athlete to give up some of their biometric data uh, in the, in the process. And I'm wondering if that has actually hit your radar.
1: That's a good question. So I know that the, the Mac conference has signed a deal with a, like a betting company.
0: I think it's genius sports. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. To give its athletes. I don't think it's biometric data. I think that one is uh, statistics to the betting company, but you know, it's very similar to the biometric data. Um, it's very valuable information, obviously to a gambling company. But I think you run into some some problems with uh, HIPAA, um, you know health records, maybe FERPA as well with that. So it's something that could happen in the future. It would just uh, probably take a lot of analysis and working around the different laws. Um, and then you have the other question of, has the athlete or athletes given their permission um, for this data to be given to someone else or to be sold, and are they getting a piece of that that money that's, that's being made? Um, so a lot, a lot of questions would have to be addressed before any type of deal like that could happen, but I could definitely see <laughs> something like that happening in the future.
0: It's something of an area of interest for me because I think uh, Europe is really starting to get it right. Mm -hmm. But we seem to still have the wild, wild west here when it comes to athletes' rights to manage and control their own data. I think this is particularly true in the college space. So a a couple of big things have happened since you and I set this up. So uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, NCAA president Mark Emmert announced that he will depart the position no no later than the end of June next year. Um, put your uh, hat on, your your thinking cap and say, okay, what does this mean? And I'll parallel that with the quote coming from the new PAC-12 commissioner, George Kliakoff. And he said, I think the NCAA is a trade organization which represents lots of schools that are in different businesses and with different business models. I can't imagine a trade organization as broad as the NCAA in its current structure remaining intact. What do you think, Matt? You're looking at this from a very unique perspective.
1: Yeah, I think first with um, Emmert stepping down, um, I don't think it's that surprising with the change that is coming. Um, your listeners, some of them are probably aware that the transformation committee for the NCAA is, is doing a lot of work right now and putting together some proposals. And I, I think some of those proposals have been shared at least privately. Um, with some of maybe your listeners, at least um, ADs, probably some presidents as well. And from what I've read, the things that are being proposed are going to be proposed are, are some pretty significant changes. Um, and I'm sure uh, Mr. Emmert was aware of that and involved in those talks and probably thought it would be prudent for, you know, someone new to step in um, with, with all the, the, the change that's likely to happen. In the future, um, in terms of Kliegav's quote, um, I think that all that all ties in with what the transformation committee is doing as well, because you know, kind of as he alludes to, different universities view athletics in different ways. Um, I think you know some universities view athletics as purely part of an educational model and as education for their students you know probably talking division three schools right there maybe some division two schools as well even some division one schools you know probably adhere more to that than than others but then at at the very highest levels of division one um you know although education is still part of it there are also other goals with having an athletics department. Um, it's You know, it's very good for alumni engagement, for just general marketing um, for the school. And then also they, some of them do make money, which funds the rest of the athletics program based on, you know, certain sports, especially football and sometimes men's basketball. And I think it's become hard for the NCAA as an organization with these different, size of schools, um, greatly varying budgets, and the different goals of having athletics that we just talked about to be members of one organization and agree on things and agree on where they want college athletics to go in the future and to put rules in place um, that would allow that to happen. So I think, and I think what Kliakov is kind of alluding to, is that there'll be some sort of further division, um, at least within division one, probably up at the power five levels of where certain schools, where their athletic budgets are just so much bigger than everyone else and their goals with their athletics programs might be a little bit different than other people. They get to shift into this other division. Some people refer to it as division four, Um, their rules will be a little bit different, maybe a little more towards professional sports in some instances, some ways, um, that will allow them to use the resources that they might have to, you know, a lot of people want more of these resources to go to the athletes. So if you're in this division four, you might be able to do that. Um, then I guess the question is what happens to some of the schools in division one now that don't become part of this new division four what what do they do do they mix with division two do some of them go to division three i think it um it remains to be seen exactly what's going to happen um there's a lot of different models that have been proposed and, and talked about um yeah, but i i think there is a lot of change to uh the structure at least at certain levels coming on the horizon
0: I agree. And I kind of like the idea of division four, for, mm-hmm. for the top level, because it doesn't force other schools to change their identities, right? It just sort of creates a new, a new entity for them. Yep. Um, this is a fascinating conversation, Mitt. And, and if, if you were to say one piece of advice that you're paying attention to, in the next, let's say six months, because this space is changing so fast, yep. for presidents to pay attention to, what would you say?
1: I would say really pay attention to what's going on with the NIL collectives and at least have some sort of, if it's not the president, and it probably wouldn't be, but someone in your athletics department who has the lines of communication open with the collectives, Um, you know, depending on, on what your state law is, that might, might vary. Uh, but I think it's important just to to be aware of what, what's going on with the collectives, what type of deals they're doing with the athletes, um, just because you don't want your athletes getting themselves into situations where they might be putting their eligibility at risk or getting into some sort of legal situation or signing deals um, that are not good for the athlete. Right, right, right.
0: It's good advice. Midwinter, Winter, thank you so much for joining me and, and providing your insight into this very complex area for our presidents and trustees and others who want to become those that need to pay attention. Thank you very much.
1: No problem. Thanks for having me on.